Hey, I'm Amar Chohan. And I'm Charlotte Williams. Thanks for tuning in to Love, Hate, Create, our podcast about the world of modern advertising. We speak with the smartest people from the industry to find out whether we should be outraged or optimistic about where things are heading. On today's episode of Love, Hate, Create, we've got Peter Semple joining us. Peter's the Chief Marketing Officer at Depop. He joined there in 2019 and leads um, the global brand and marketing teams, ensuring Depop's reaching and captivating audiences across markets um, and getting people to buy and sell more secondhand fashion. Prior to Depop, um, he spent seven years leading product and marketing innovation projects at Google's Creative Lab in New York and London. And there he worked across um, existing Google products and uh, new technologies. He's also worked in creative agencies um, like Anomaly on big consumer brands like uh, Converse, Nike, O2 and Coca-Cola. He's also launched a couple of uh, personal fashion projects over the years. Um, He's also obsessive about music, design, youth culture and sneakers. So really excited to have you join us, Peter. Thanks Thanks so much for having me. Looking forward to chatting. Yeah, absolutely. Welcome, Peter. Incredible bio there. Very interesting. Lots to talk about. What an intro. So um, first of all, just to kick us off, um, going back through your bio, you, you spent seven years at Google, a huge... Um, tech behemoth company um, and have now gone to a much much smaller organization um, with a big purpose um, around fashion the circular economy how has that been for a a culture shift for you Uh, it's I mean I've been at Depop for nearly five years so it's sort of trying to remember time before um, and obviously in that time pandemic and a zillion other things have happened to us all but I loved my time at Google and I think in some of the answers to the other questions I'll sort of talk about the fact that I've been on the agency side and the client side and in fact my Google role was a sort of hybrid of being a client but sort of being part of a thing that was sort of like a lab-shaped agency for some parts of internal Google. Um, But what was amazing about the Google thing, I I learned from incredible people, it really broadened my horizons, being much more close to tech product than a bunch of the marketing and branding stuff I'd done before. And the people I worked for, and Google as a whole, but specifically the people I worked for, were very, very, very user-centric. And actually, we had the privilege of, in this lab setting, somewhat choosing the things we worked on. And we chose to work on the things, and we put our weight behind the things that we thought were the most ultimately beneficial to our end users. And at times, we had the freedom to be not commercially minded in service of user. Um, And obviously, when I came to Depop, I have to be a lot more commercially minded because we're a, we were a sort of late stage startup. We're now post acquisition, but there's still a big path of growth ahead of us. Um, but a, a bunch of the principles of really putting the user first and confidently believing that if you do good things for the user, then the business part should follow. I try and believe, bring to lots of that philosophy to the stuff we do here at Depop. Yeah. So your role there is actually in many ways your first official well- client side role right because google creative labs essentially a, you're not being a marketeer there right you're, you're you're actually doing a more of an agency role and and, and technology focused role how's that been? yeah yeah it's been great i mean it's the google thing was so variant or various yeah. i guess across the seven seven and a half years so there were times when we 
partnered with the call it more traditional marketing arms of Google to work with agencies to build campaigns around phone launches or kind of the major products. So parts of my role there were client in the truest sense. And that was the first time I'd ever done it. And then here, again, I guess there's some version of hybrid reality. We do work with agencies, but we also have a lot of we do a lot of kind of the creative development and things in-house. So a lot of the stuff we put out to the world has actually been built here. Um, so again, a little bit of client, a little bit of internal. Can we make the thing ourselves? -ness. Where where do agencies come yeah. in then for you guys? Because you've got, it sounds like you've got pretty good creatives um, and which means you can get stuff done faster as well, I imagine. Where, yeah. where do agencies come in for you and, and where do you think they add more value than you guys could probably do yourselves? So, I mean, we definitely, you know, media planning and media buying and stuff, we don't have in-house. We leverage some of our parent company Etsy's capabilities in that area. And we do have people here, certainly on the paid and performance side that lead some of that. Um, but we work with media agencies as we think about multi-channel and bigger campaigns. And then we work with a sort of smattering of external kind of creative and strategic partners, I guess. And we've worked with more traditional agency models um, here and in the US. We've worked with um, smaller sort of design studio shaped people. And then we sort of have a rotating kind of, you know, partner book of creative or strategic talent that we bring in to be extensions of our team. And that was something I definitely took from my Google experience where in the lab we kept things very small skeleton crew but we knew who to pull on um, and there was a, that was a version of a philosophy I brought here too of what's the kind of core skeleton you need to be mm. really tapped into the pace of change within the business itself and then it's actually quite useful not having loads of people on staff all the time yeah. because the projects change so often so do you know the right expert to bring in for the right thing um, so yeah, we, we definitely partner with external people to bring us objectivity, obviously to expand our capacity, to challenge us on, on some stuff. Um, but the creative and strategic teams internally are great here, which is an awesome thing. Absolutely. So let's move on to the central premise then of, of, of the podcast, which is of course around what you love, what you mm -hmm. hate, um, and the change that you would create. Um, if you could cast a magic magic spell across the industry. Um, so first of all, what is it then that you really love about your job and being in this field? Yeah, I am. Um, so I'll ramble a bit, but obviously please sort of interject whenever the right thing. I think on the, the love part, I sort of love the fact that we still, people challenge this, I guess at times, but we still are in an, uh, are in an industry where creativity is the sort of central answer to all of it so whether that's really interesting ideation inspiration on the comms side and um the kind of messaging and the things the artifacts we put into the world or product innovation ideation or new business models you know it's actually really exciting i genuinely think creativity is one of the things that will save us effectively <laughs> businesses need to figure out how to leap forward you need new ideas to do that um creativity can drive behavior change, consumption change, social change. Mm. That's really powerful. Um, and I love that. And, I guess and how would you define creativity? Sorry, I'm interjecting already. But it's so, it, so many people have different definitions. For you, what, what does creativity mean? Well, I, I think it's a, and this again probably bleeds in some of the stuff we'll come on to talk about. I think 
you know, I joined the industry 20 years ago and creativity and brand things were these sort of sacrosanct kind of immovable objects and some notions of the kind of defiant preciousness around creativity. And, um, I think a, a bunch of that has dissipated and some of that's not great. And I think there's less risk taking than, um, there used to be in the industry, but broadly speaking, as I say, I think ideation, inspiration, um, innovation, overused word or whatever, but we need that. All businesses need a new version of that as you might have a really compelling product, but then the competitive set gets more, much more complicated. How are you going to ideate your way through to being distinct and to building a relationship with a user? And that might be some fantastic, call it advertising artifact, and those things still definitely exist, but it might be, yeah, as I say, like a pivot on the business model or a product shift. So I think creativity and ideation in all forms helps pull business forward. And I love the big, shiny, magical, emotive parts of what our industry is capable of generating. But I, the more and more I sort of get deeper in my career, I also get really interested in a fascinating intellectual <laughs> creative idea that helps us think differently about how we'll approach a marketplace. And what does creativity mean for Depop then? Because you guys have, um, and I know Depop is about more than just the Gen Z audience. It's actually for everyone. Yeah. You've got a fairly young demographic, demographic, I'm assuming, as your core customer base. So yeah. how does that differ from maybe some of the more corporate brands that you worked on in your agency days? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, obviously there are underlying themes of we're all trying to grow business. I, what I love here, and I think when I first met UMR, I was talking about this notion of this, the, I'm in a business now at Depop where it's the purest version of if we grow as a business, we're also having positive impact because we're changing people's consumption behavior, bringing them to the secondhand market, displacing new fashion purchases, you know, reducing environmental waste, all of those sort of things. Um, but the job here and the job forever, certainly for the next 10 years, is going to be building the category of resale, resale penetration of call it fashion wallet is still very limited. There's lots and lots more people over the last five years who are up for trying it, but you know, of the 27 things they'll buy in a six month period, maybe one of those is resale. So we have to use creativity to be compelling, not just to get them to consider us as a business, but to get them over the hump of even considering a new method of fashion consumption. Um, so yeah, I think it's sort of, how do we cut through? We also don't have all the money in the world and we do have in various of our markets very big competition so we have to be very smart about lodging ourselves in people's brains and exciting them to try us either versus yeah. the competition or versus first-hand fashion that they've First been conditioned time. to consume their entire lives i remember you you spoke recently i heard you speak recently and you you talked about the principles of the four C's, which maybe you can elaborate on a little bit, but also you were saying that, you know, people come for the clothes, but they stay for the community, right? With, with Depop, that's really the spirit of, of the yeah. platform, yeah. which I thought was really fascinating. So it's obviously getting them, like you say, getting them over the line and then they, they tend to stay, do they? And come yeah. back? Yeah, yeah. I mean, as I say, you know, competitive dynamics are different in each market and there's more people contemplate the secondhand market there will be more entrance so there's you know it's great if we've got them in the first time but we have to keep them here and we have to continue being engaging and those four C's when we were when I was doing that talk and we all met with you know culture and collaboration and community and ultimately their power to drive commerce um, 
and I think it speaks to a little bit of, I think, again, stuff that we'll come on to in the, maybe the hate and create thing of the magic of the art and science of our industry and finding a balance and trying to maintain a balance or at least kind of fluctuating as necessary between those things. Some of the things that we try and do to drive cultural engagement and to really provoke people's behavior are the more, hey, it's an experiment, we'll give it a shot, it may not work things um, and you need space for those to keep building progress I think yeah and there's there's a hell of a lot of as you've said there's a hell of a lot of uh headroom there isn't there one out of 27 yeah. garments let's say that's not a um, direct not a direct stat, but, well, yeah. but you get the point yeah yeah if we, if we use I that as, probably uh, know the uh, number of course if we use that as an example it's very different to how can I get um someone to switch from one telecoms provider to another yeah where there's very little discernible difference or to get people like. to buy a little bit more toothpaste whereas here the, the instrument of creativity thrown at trying to like actually realize that head groom feels like a, a really exciting and um, space and also leaves a lot of room for, for possibilities yeah. coupled with the fact that you don't have as much money as maybe some other brands. Yeah, I mean, it's challenging, which but it's then exciting. creates more room for creativity as well in, in many cases. Yeah. Tell us then, what what is it that you hate about our world of, of marketing and comms and, and advertising? Yeah, good provocative um, start point. Well, yeah, I was, I was sort of thinking about this and I tend to be a hopefully good-natured optimist in most of my life, so I feel like I don't have a great deal of hate So are we, uh, despite I don't, well, this I question. I definitely Surprising. get the vibe. Um, but it's a good provocative thing. And I, I was thinking about actually, you know, I've been lucky enough across my career to be on the agency side and on the client side. And I think, so I was sort of thinking of what the most poignant answer for me for this question is probably actually somewhat the kind of historic animosity that it still exists between these sort of stereotypes of what a client and agency are. And I do think, you know, across my quite a long career, across yours, there's much more cross-pollination. I'm an example of it, of people who've worked on both sides. But I think there are still behaviors on agencies and client sides that um, we could move past as an industry. And I think, you know, it's sort of, having been on the agency side, I was really frustrated if a client wouldn't give, you know, a clear and thought through and disciplined and confident brief, because then it's very hard to actually do good work without really understanding sort of where some of the principles and reference points lie. And I've seen people, and I'm sure I'm guilty of it at times, who've gone from the agency to client side, who then sort of fall into the trap of sort of going, ah, it's, the brief's not quite there, but we'll try and we'll assume the agency can sort of figure it out. And I think, so I think there's a sort of, um, clients can do a better job always about giving the best possible start point to the agencies they partner with. I think on the agency side, and I'm, again, I'm certain I was probably guilty of this in my time on the agency side, you know, there's a somewhat bias at times to assume that the client, you know, doesn't know what they're talking about or is too distracted and, and not contemplating the right things. In the reality, these agencies and clients more more than ever are consuming the same things, ex experiencing the same things. We're all seeing the same amount of influencer signals in the world. Um, so I think, you know, you asked me how we use agencies here. We use them to really be additive and to bring an objective voice that's separate from the stuff we know internally and the people I work with internally and have on my team really know stuff. So I don't want an agency to come in and presume no one knows anything and sort of, you know, tell us what we already frankly know. It's sort of a waste of time. So I guess that sort of some of those stereotypes, which I think still maintain 
the bit that I hate about them is it's ultimately wasted opportunity. And I think, you know, arrogance on either side isn't helpful. Um, and yeah. empathy towards the world in which people live on both sides of our kind of business, empathy on both sides, which we're all very capable of having, even if you haven't done both jobs, that will lead to better opportunities for better work, basically. Yeah, it, it, I mean, this is a very common theme that, that comes up. Is it, it seems a bit crazy that people are still, you know, talking about how, a, you know, you don't get a clear enough brief, right? Maybe we could create a universal brief framework. <laughs> I'm sure I'm sure people have thought of that. In fact, I've seen it on the IPA. But, um, you know, what what is it? What What's the barrier? What's sort of beyond that? What lies? Why is that still such a problem? Is it because you think that agencies are scared to push back? Is it because there's not enough time? Clients are always rushed. Everything's last minute. Uh, I mean, I guess probably some combination of all of those things. I mean, I you know the going into the client side on Google and then very much so here. You know, I have I have much more empathy for the clients that I would have worked with back in the day than I was capable of having at the time because there's a whole bunch of really complicated stuff happening internally at all times, and therefore I or even the people on my team whose sole job it is, frankly, to write the briefs and put things they they have a bunch of other stuff happening in their broader universe. So I think being pulled in lots of directions contributes to perhaps a less disciplined brief or a less crisp point of view um, because there isn't necessarily always one within the business itself um, I think some agencies yeah maybe don't push back enough or ignore the brief anyway and go and do what they thought was the right idea and that's also somewhat unconstructive it might lead to random random serendipitous brilliance because that brilliance does exist out there but it's a bit of a it's a gamble um, so I don't know, I, I was listening to one of your other podcasts and I think uh, the chap from Oatly, he sort of made some yeah. really, you know, pithy reference to the fact that like, hey, if his team thinks something's cool, stands a good chance of people thinking it's cool in the outside world. And I sort of believe in that. Like I constantly talk about, hey, if we can find ways to be interesting, people might be interested in us. And I think, you know, the, the simple thing of approaching a brief is the people internally should be looking at it and going, could we work from this? Like, does this make sense? Is it clear enough? Do we really understand which of these 17 things we're saying in the brief is the f most fundamental one? And if they don't, they should probably go back and revise it and refine it until they do, basically. I think in many of these cases, it's because that's the way it's always been done, right? You talked about yeah. stereotypes and we talk about status quo. Um, if, if no one's pushing and people don't have the desire to to change because actually people don't really like change that much do they um, mm. because um, it requires harder like... graft then you're going to keep running into these kind of scenarios where um it's all just a bit mediocre and not quite crisp enough as, as, yeah, as, yeah. as you articulated so yeah do, do you know changing... i was just say one oh, sorry carry no, on no i think just changing the way things are done is necessary, especially in today's world where actually the yeah. the landscape and how people are um, engaging with brands and marketing is so different to 10 years ago. But actually, I'm sure in, in many marketing departments, the same process is being followed from 10 years ago just because yeah. no one's yeah, had the uh, initiative to, to change it. Yeah. I mean, I think if we can all focus and I you know wouldn't remotely claim to be brilliant at it here on crisp 
succinct, quick, you know, the one of the mentors at Creative Lab in Google World was spend 99.9% of your time making. So if you can't express what the inside and what you're trying to move is in frankly two sentences, then it's probably not sharp enough to drive good work. But I, I was going to say the other kind of interesting learning, I think, from the Creative Lab thing that I try and apply here, and it's more difficult in... Um, we were very lucky at Google because there was lots of space and you sort of knew my group didn't have much money, but you knew money existed if there was a good enough idea that it would be yours. So, but what we did do, we were, we were a pitch factory fundamentally. We just constantly made and invented and threw out ideas and within the context of whatever the broader business needs were. And we, we learned and it took a while and not everyone kind of got it over, you know, maybe nine out of 10 of those things wouldn't go forward. They'd all get crushed or someone else in the organization would be doing a slightly better version of the thing you had. And you sort of became unemotional about whether they all won because it would be unrealistic to assume they could do. But it made us sort of capable of entering into briefs that were a little bit more nebulous because actually the, the role we were playing was doing some of the exploration and design the creative development to help sharpen what might be the actual brief, as it were. And I feel like there's lots of we go through a version of this at Depop at the moment where I actually want to bring in some external creative partners who are willing to sprint and kind of build a war room with us and put, throw a bunch of stuff at the wall, but know that at the end, a lot of it will probably not go through and a lot of it will probably die because it's actually some of that creative exploration will help us sharpen mm. what we think the next opportunity is. And I don't think most agencies are sort of set up well to do that they need a deliverable and they need to see the thing in the world to feel its true value um whereas obviously you can really leverage creative exploration and design thinking to, yeah. to sharpen strategy and that would be a cool way to work but i think we're unlikely to do that with agencies we'll probably do it with a couple of people who i know well who used to do it with me at google so it can come in the right mindset but maybe there's an opportunity there for agencies to really be up for playing with yeah. some stuff basically yeah, because like you say, there's so much for deliverables, right? P pressure to deliver assets, campaigns, whatever. But it sound that sounds like a luxury having having that at Google. But yeah. maybe quite brutal if you're constantly trying to fulfil briefs and then half of them or more than that don't go through. That yeah. must have been quite a tough environment. Yeah, it was. And, and it didn't work for everyone, for sure. Yeah. And people came in and out of the lab a lot. And to some degree, that was also suited our bringing in freelance people because they'd come in and do a project, but they didn't have, you know, you, you did build a, quite a thick skin over the years of, of the 87 projects we pitched last year, only three of them came through, but those three were meaningful enough for us to feel great about the work we've developed and the exploration of the others helped us. Um, but I, again, I think one of the things I learned from Google that I really try and land here, the, the creative lab I worked in existed in what we called a culture of scarcity like we had very little budget but we had the sort of confident foundation of knowing as i say that if the idea was good enough and you could get in front of larry or Sundar or someone there was no end to the budget that you could achieve and i try when we talk about innovation here at this business i want people to feel some like we definitely don't have the unending budget and the privilege that google had but you need to believe that the idea you're developing has some possibility to get the resources or the funding or the capacity to get behind it. Otherwise, you just won't bother ideating. So I try and take some of the principles of Google and then kind of apply them a bit more to sort of the real world in which I now live. Yeah, I would love to 100%. do that job. 
<laughs> it was cool. It was tiring. Well, it's um, like if but... you get a, if you if you start if you get to a, a good one, you actually could then pour rocket fuel into well, yeah. and that's the a lot know, of the, money. The great promise is yeah, launching. you could then affect millions and billions of people because of the scale and scope of Google. Uh, but we did a bunch of stuff I loved in my time at Google that. Will never find its way out of the archive. Never saw the light of day. <laughs> yeah, but also the undervalued skill, right, of being able to sell in an idea. I attended a workshop at Cannes, and I, I, it was fascinating actually around how to sell in an idea. Yes. <laughs> and the level of creatives in that room was astonishing. I was like, wow, okay, they, you know, they were C level one da- ECDs. I thought this is really interesting that people still, you know, perhaps perhaps we're not taught to do that is yeah. that a fundamental skill i guess so and i think it probably ties back to the, to the notion of the you know call it empathy between mm. you know, and then this is sort of the thing is like none of these things necessarily have a definitive right answer you know you need to understand if you're on the agency side the context of who your client is what's likely to appeal them and there's a little bit of you know being able to kind of play the psychology game on that thing but then who is the person they are then going to have to repeat this thing to that's going to have to get it? And most in most organizations, who's the third, you know, what is the thing that by the time it gets to the third person or the board member or the CEO, what is the three-sentence summary of the thing you pitched in the beginning? And is that going to be compelling? <laughs> so I I don't know. I, I think you, you sort of have to, there's probably some really good principles and maybe I could try and write some down, but ultimately you just have to be an empath and understand the context mm. of what you're, pitching understand the context of the human beings and the business reality therein and try and find a way forward and if you can't match your idea to all of those contextual things it's probably actually not the right idea even if it's really good yeah empathy seems to be a key skill with it underlying all of this doesn't it um that a lot of people could could learn perhaps um okay so moving on we've done your love and hate unless there's anything else you love or hate that you'd like no, no. to share i love lots of things <laughs> hate fewer <laughs> hate fewer. wonderful um what is the change then peter that you would like to create what would you change about our industry um now if you so, could so ultimately some culmination of i guess the bits that we've been talking through um i think this idea of like reclaiming or recreating space for ideation inspiration and creativity at its its purest is a thing that i would challenge my peers my internal team me um how do we give people license to think bigger and in a world where more things are trackable than ever and more results are generatable from certain channels you know, there's a, and especially, I suppose, after the kind of digital world that we lived through during the COVID lockdown years, there's a lot of, you know, adherence to, gosh, if I can't see the immediate impact of a thing, is it worth doing? If we can't physically measure it, is it worthwhile? And I, I think we need to sort of reclaim a little bit of the experience and, and sort of creativity and intuition of the brilliant people in this industry to take a few more risks than perhaps we do as companies these days. And there's the never ending balance of brand investment versus performance investment. In reality, of course, you need some version of both of them and the mix you need of them changes across the course of time, depending on where you are as a business. But you definitely need both of them. I definitely don't think you can exist with only the grandly efficient, yeah. immediately trackable pieces. So I think that kind of more space um, for ideation thing 
it then slightly taps into, I'm sure a theme that comes up with you folks a lot is sort of those ideas can and should be coming from anywhere. And as an industry, we have to kind of continue sort of challenging the existing workforce. Like again, 20 years ago, it was like, oh, you're in the creative department. Those are the only people who have ideas. That's no longer the case. The inspiration, the intuition can come from lots of places. But there's lots we need to do to drive the broader representation of the people coming into our industry and the opportunities that are afforded to them and the voice that they're given, because then we'll get more ideas from more different experiences. And I truly believe those things will make things better. Um, so, yeah, you I create think those conditions space... then like it, it, it's something we used to call it contagious, the 5% club. And it was a heuristic, but it was like set aside 5% or 2% or 10% of your budget. Um, yeah in marketing every year for like experimentation uh, experimentation and innovation yeah. and ideation and come up with it but how do you actually organize for for that or do is that something you haven't done mm -hmm. at depop or or, or before okay. the, so that people actually have the bandwidth and that license to to come up with those ideas and then of course get behind them if you think there is one that could be worth investing in yeah i mean it's you know we've done it in different ways at Depop and there's a version of a live conversation happening around it now for what the next chapter needs to look like and as I say my journey at Depop has been a very up and down one in a in fascinating way lots and lots of great challenges and opportunities and learnings from you know VC funded post series B to then pandemic explosion of growth while lots of people had lots of time on their hands and I always feel somewhat guilt in the fact that we grew during the pandemic, given how badly it affected so many other businesses. And then post acquisition, what does it look like to interact with a bigger organization like Etsy, which is a fascinating, operationally excellent machine, very, very data driven, but quite different from us and has sort of grown up in slightly different ways. So again, I think the shape of how you allow for innovation changes across the course of the time but your five percent thing i do think you actually have to name it i think that's a really important thing because and whether it's five percent or at google they famously have their kind of 20 percent time thing you need to give some people oh so you need to give some mental framework of an expectation of your role becomes space for thinking beyond what you're doing in your day job and the quantity of that is greatly variable depending on the mm. resources of the business. And as I say, this is where I try and think about all the luxuries we had in my role at Google and the fact that we were this team that sort of started a year with no plan and were just allowed to make stuff up. We still had to show our worth. So there was sort of portfolio management if we needed to make sure we were actually getting enough ideas over the line or delivering enough values. But we, were, we didn't start with constraints. Um, that is a luxury. It's not something I can recreate here. It's not something I suspect most people can recreate, but telling people and feeling like they have the kind of psychological space and almost the expectation that they're all capable yeah. of innovation and experimentation. And then, yeah, as I say, naming it's useful, allocating a fund to it is useful, no matter how small, because then that gets to the point of, hey, if there's a good enough idea we do have some means to actually invest in it to see it through to fruition. Um, yeah. So yeah, we're actually having a debate about what the next version of that needs to look like for a now quite different shaped team here of brilliant people at Depop for the yeah. next couple of years. That's really interesting. And the point you raised about, you know, almost giving people permission, right? Because I often yeah. think it's surprising how many people think, oh, I can't 
read a book on strategy or or you know listen to a certain music or whatever well you know during the work day yeah when actually yeah, their boss giving them permission to do that and encouraging it is just immediately makes a difference I think, yeah probably. I think the whole like the remote workforce thing post COVID is, is useful in some respects because obviously you know it's a bit like education not everyone is going to receive information in the same way and people will find different ways of being productive you need to have faith in the people in your company to be kind of grown-ups and be responsible but if someone can do all of their work in two hours brilliantly and they take the rest of the eight hours of the day or six hours of the day or whatever the maths would be to do the thinking that then empowers those last two hours of brilliant productivity hey i'm all for it as long as the work gets done but one of one of the things i do sort of miss that we used to leverage when we were in the real world call it uh, lots of the time in my agency world or in google was then you could just put posters on the wall that reminded people of you know creative lab we had a number of principles they're like spend 99% of your time making was one of them know the user know the magic find ways to connect the two and actually it's quite useful to just consistently remind people of those things you know like in our earlier in our careers you'd get like a desk drop in an agency or in a, in a client business where you'd get a little pack that briefed you on the latest internal comms thing or the latest you know agency uh, sort of campaign that was going live and we miss a bit of that sort of repetition of the rules and the expectations and the frameworks that can actually be helpful by not all being in the same place every once in a while. Nothing like a, an inspirational quote or motivational line. I'm I'm not, you're reminding bad. me of a, a job I had. <laughs> yeah, my, my, my first job in ad and advertising was in a slightly dubious uh, media sales organization. And there was a massive poster on the wall that said persistence is omnipotent and it's just <laughs> stayed in my brain forever since then and you've just reminded That's me horrible, of it. Yeah. But <laughs> yeah. true. It is Do you true. have a favourite quote, Peter? <laughs> Philosophy. Uh, I don't know. Um, no, I'm actually now, I should be able to tell you what the one on the wall anomaly was because it was a sort of about the sort of the world depends on the unreasonable man for progress and again, that's sort of challenging conventions which is obviously very much what anomaly was mm. like. Uh, not giving any spoilers away, but if you watched The Bear, which is the most yes, brilliant TV it. show for a long while, you know, every second counts, that sort of... Um, That's my new version of Persistence is Omnipotent. Yeah, it's great. And some of those things, I suppose, over time can become hackneyed, but some of them are just like, yeah, that's a really good point. As I say, the, the one, a bunch of the ones at Google stick with me, spend as much time as you can making. In fact, spend all of your time making and spend less of it creating decks, getting lost in politics, doing all the admin tasks. And it's, you know, those are all aspirational. And again, some of it we achieved at Google, even at Google, some of it we didn't achieve. But we're being consistently reminded of, you know, there is a better way is actually kind of a useful thing. Absolutely. So before we wrap up then, um, we always like to ask what you think the future will look like. So fast forward 10 years, what do you think our space um, is going to, going to feel and, and look like? How will we have evolved or how do you hope we will have evolved by then? Well, I think sort of I've never worked in a giant agency. So actually, I sort of probably am not the best person to comment on what the future of these enormous organizations um, looks like. But I do love over the last five or 10 years, these notions of kind of networks and nodes of brilliance. And as I say, that kind of model of like a creative lab that was core skeleton crew and then brilliant people that you could call on to do any variety of things. And I have a bunch of friends and peers and people I look up to in the agency who sort of launched these new 
yeah, creative network studio things that are a version of, there's only actually two of them, but somehow they connect with brilliant people all around the world. And all of that stuff, I think, was exacerbated, of course, by COVID and lockdown and no one needs to be in the same room. I think we do lose some of the bits from not having the thrash it out until the earliest hours of the morning. But I just think actually this sort of variable and flexible and nuanced model and, you know, kind of less definitive agency shape is probably really exciting and will probably lead to much more kind of cross-pollination of interesting talent going to different places. Perhaps it's actually useful to some degree that people don't want full-time jobs anymore. Great, they'll actually go and have a variety of experiences and when they land or when you can convince them to land with you for a while, they'll bring more to the pie that, or more to the party than they would have done otherwise. So I do think those network connectivity, ideation, but not you know, monolithic rigid, kind of agency, yeah, rigid structures thing. I think that feels like some version of the future that we're moving towards for good, I think. Fantastic. Thank you. Brilliant answers, brilliant insights. Thank you so much, Thanks Peter. so much for having really me. Really enjoyed that. Yeah, yeah. Thank really you very much. It. And uh, we'll be keeping a close eye on, on how Depop um, yeah, yeah. does in the next couple of years. <laughs> Thank you. I Great. am. I'm always on there. <laughs> Ciao. Speak to you soon. <laughs>